As we begin today, once again, I encourage you to perhaps take out your bulletin or uh, check out the notes section in your bulletins. You can also uh, open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. Our sermon verse today is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is this place in northern Israel that was a gateway for northern armies that would often come throughout Israel's history that would bring havoc and ruin. They would invade and destroy Israel. This was the place that they would march through. And in this same place, about 40 years from when Jesus says these words to Peter, the Roman emperor Vespasian would have Jewish rebels thrown to wild animals for his own entertainment. They are in Caesarea Philippi, where the church is not going to be overcome. In this place, Caesarea Philippi is told that, that the church will not be overcome. It's, it's the same place where in the backdrop there are these mountains, and on these mountains throughout the history of the world, idols and temples have been built to false gods. At one point, there was a temple to the false god Baal, later on to the god Pan. And as Jesus is speaking these words, there was a temple to the Roman emperor Caesar. In this place, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says that the church will not be overcome. This place where Philip, the son of the hated Herod the Great, once ruled. And he took the name Caesar and his own name and combined it together to make Caesarea Philippi. Caesar, Philip, Caesarea Philippi. This place, we hear, in this place, we hear Jesus say that the church will not be overcome, but it is a place of military, spiritual, and political defeat. And Jesus says these words here. And Jesus says these words here, this morning. This morning. And at a time when, when, the enemies of the church are go unnumbered. There are so many that want to tear the church down. There, there are so many that say that the church holds back progress and education and that we are somehow anti-science. There, there are some that want to tear down the church because they believe that the church is a place that cradles and fosters racism. There are some that want to tear down the church because they see the church as standing in the way of equality because of our beliefs about gender and sexuality. There are some that say that the church is an offense against women because we stand against the killing of the unborn in the womb. And if we were to look, oh, and by the way, before I move on, I should say that's just some of the things. That's just some of the reasons and some of the groups that are out there. And not only that, but if we look for allies, if we look for for help in all these different struggles that we have, what might we find? If we look through all the major denominations in the United States, from, say, Catholic to Methodist to Episcopalian to Baptist, and yes, e yes, even Lutherans, we will find that there are forces within each of these churches, each of these church bodies, 
that have already given way and caved into the world and have backed away from Scripture. And in many places, these are the groups that are controlling the church and responsible for its decisions and its changes in doctrine. And on top of that, every year seems to bring in one scandal after another. Another pastor that will embroil himself in controversy, take a six-month break and come back like nothing happened. And then, of course, there are Christian artists who, who have led so many through their song who have committed the sin now of apostasy. There's a recent rash of Christian artists and musicians who have committed apostasy. What is that? It has nothing to do with noodles and Italian sauces. Uh, apostasy is instead recanting your faith, renouncing your faith, saying you don't believe in Jesus anymore. And recently the church has suffered a rash of musicians who have done that very thing. And on top of that, Jesus says here in this place that, that the gates of hell will not overcome us. Us! Us here, we, we who so many of us gather together on Sunday mornings with grief in our hearts because children and grandchildren have turned away from the faith altogether or have pursued a softer form of doctrine, a sugar-coated Jesus. We who work so hard to build up the courage to bring Jesus into the conversation with a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus or for a friend who does not have faith. And when the moment comes, all of that courage we work so hard to build up evaporates. Let me ask you a question. When you walk into the church, what are you more likely to find? People standing together, shoulder to shoulder, firm in their beliefs, or people arguing about the color of the carpet? Some of you are laughing, and there's this knowing experience behind your laugh that I'm hearing. I hear your answer. Does Jesus say this to us? Does he mean that the gates of hell will not overcome the church? Can he actually be serious? Yes. Yes. He says it to Peter. And now, the reading of the gospel... He says it to you, to this place, and to all believers in this time, that not even the gates of hell will overcome you. Matthew 16, 13-20, our gospel reading, features a conversation between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes a stunning confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that statement is loaded with meaning. But I'm just going to look at one of the things Peter says. Two words, living God. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This phrase has roots deep in the Old Testament. Just a couple examples. Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. If you're really fast with the Bible, you can get there. Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. You have Joshua who's standing in front of Israel and he's not pointing Israel away from their enemies. He's not trying to make their troubles smaller, but he's standing with Israel as they're about to enter the promised land, staring out over all the people that they will have to do battle with in order to make way into the promised land. And he says this, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. I'm paraphrasing. When he drives out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and 
Girgashites and so on and so forth. The whole list of, of enemies Joshua names one after the other and he says that God will drive each of them out and when that happens, you'll know that the living God is your God and among you. David, the future king of Israel and in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26 is visiting with his brothers. He's not yet king. He's not yet known in Israel. But his brothers are in the army and they're facing off against the Philistines. And David comes forward and he sees a giant, a man named Goliath, the supreme warrior of the Philistines, taunting Israel, Israel frozen in fear. But David isn't. And in 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says, Who is this? Who is this guy that defies the armies of the living God? That's 1 Samuel 17, 26. Both Joshua and David believed in the living God and they were given victory. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, the one talking to Jesus today, also believed in the living God. We read in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, that after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he appears to Peter and he says to him that when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and you'll be taken to a place that you do not want to go. And there's this little comment that John gives us in parentheses that says that he told this to Peter to indicate what kind of death he would die. And after these words, Jesus then says to Peter, follow me. And Peter does, even into death, even through great suffering. Why? Because he believed in the living God. And you are sons and daughters of the living God. You, when you enter into the kingdom of God, and by that I mean when you come to faith and believe in Jesus, you are heirs of this legacy, heirs of this legacy of courageous faith that has never been an enemy that God cannot overcome. You have received from the Holy Spirit faith in the living God. He is living because he is eternal and unchanging. He is the living God because he has never been defeated in battle. He is the living God because he makes all things new. He's the living God, eternal and unchanging, undefeated, and he makes all things new. In fact, in our sermon verse today, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, have a Bible open or grab your bulletin. I want you to look at it. Matthew 16, verse 18, this is what we have. Jesus does two new things. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. If you have a pencil or a pen, circle it. If you don't have those things, just mentally circle it. Imagine circle. Circle that, underline it, something. Peter, never before in the ancient world did anybody have that word as a name. I'm going to say that again. Never before, up until this point in the ancient world, did anyone have the name Peter. Jesus literally gives Peter, formerly Simon, a new name. Nobody's parents said, you'll be called Peter. Until this point, right here, 
So this is shockingly new. The, the word in Greek is petros. It's taken from a more common Greek word, petros. Petros, like with an O, petros with an A. Petros is the common word for rocks, stones, you know, the things, the hard things laying around on the ground or the stuff you can build walls with, rocks. So, so Peter takes that, that word in Greek and, and kind of mans it up a little bit. He, he puts the noun in the masculine form for the grammar people out there, and he makes it petros. Nobody else had that name until now. And then there's also this. He says in verse 18, And on this rock I will build my church. And on this rock I will build my church. Again, he's saying this in Caesarea Philippi, where in the background there are plenty of foundations for old temples that have fallen into ruin and, and, and temples that are still standing. And so Jesus is saying that I'm going to build the church in a completely different way than any other type of church has ever been built before. I'm going to build it on you, Peter, your, your work, your ministry, your faith. I'm going to build it on you and the, and the faith and work and ministry of the apostles. I'm going to build it on them. Here's the great news that Peter writes in his epistle, 1 Peter, that you, talking to us, you, are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Peter was the rock. So also by faith are you. Regardless of the circumstances of the current day, Jesus is continuing to build his church. I cannot think of any greater evidence for the existence of the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus is still alive, than the fact that the church remains here at all. Study its history for five minutes and see the suffering that the church has been through. See how the world has thrown everything it has against the church time and time again. And yet Jesus has continued to build his church with one living stone after another. No matter how the rain falls or the wind blows, the Lord will continue to build his church. The foundation of his word confession of faith that he gave to his apostles and the pastors and teachers and people that followed them. So, have then promised that the church will stand and that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Not even the gates of hell. I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I used to read this verse, I would always think of the church in a defensive stance. Like the church, you know, behind some sort of like fortress or something. And, and, and so I'm picturing like, you know, the, the armies of hell and this kind of cartoonish imagination I have surrounding the church and, and the church standing against all that, right? And, and commentaries I read also picture it that way too. But one thing this week as I was preparing the sermon caught me as, as a little funny. And that is, Jesus says that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. So if the church is on defense, then what is Satan doing? Is he literally throwing gates at the church? Because gates are a defensive weapon, right? I mean, or, or they're a defense, they're not a weapon, they're just a defense. And back you know, in, in ancient times, you would take the strongest materials you had, wood, stone, metal, and you would make your gate. And you would lock that gate if ever an enemy army came. And if the gates failed and the army got into the city, 
you're done. And so you would focus your strongest defense around these gates, right? And the enemy army would always try to break the gates. So maybe Jesus isn't saying or giving us a picture of the church being on defense, kind of huddling it inside, away from everything, but, but maybe hell is on defense. It's their gates that are going to be broken, according to this promise. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it, and maybe the church is on offense. So Jesus says these words to Peter, that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. As he sets out against darkness and evil, and he says it to us. But what will you say to others? What will you say to others? We turn away being sugar of the earth, sweet, soft, and gentle, and become salt like we are called to be. Will we not give up on those who seem impossibly lost, be they our own children and grandchildren or anybody else? Will we continue to pray and seek opportunities to do everything we can with all of our might to share the gospel? Will we commit to a person, to the children and youth of our church, to prepare them for the spiritual warfare that is ahead for them? Will we make that a personal responsibility? Will we not be afraid to speak truth whenever there is evil? Will we stand? Will we stand? Will we turn away from a Jesus that is so often reduced down to nothing but pop psychology and soft self-taught and instead declare that we believe in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for those who believe? course, the question that daunts us, even in this moment, I can almost feel it in the room as I say it, is what if we're afraid? What if we fail? We are afraid. What if we fail? What if, what if we make a mistake? What if we embarrass ourselves? What if we fail, make a mistake, or embarrass ourselves? Well, the good news is, is that the Apostle Peter has already done all three. <laughs> He's done all three of those things already. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and, re and he receives this amazing commendation and promise. I'll build my church on you. Hell will not overcome it. But in the very next story in our gospel, starting in verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to go to the cross and die and rise again on the third day. And when Peter hears that, he literally stands in front of Jesus and tries to block his path. He physically obstructs Jesus. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So we go from this stunning commendation to this incredible rebuke. And Peter also will deny Jesus. He'll straight up deny Jesus. When Jesus is arrested, there is a little girl that comes to, to Peter as he's standing outside of the courtyard where inside Jesus is on trial. And she'll say, Rock, rock, do you follow Jesus? And he'll say, Simon doesn't say. And then later on also, still 
Peter will mess it up. He'll, he'll, as the church is going and moving, Peter will be there in Jerusalem and he'll get confused again about the gospel and he'll stand more for the law than the gospel and Paul, the apostle Paul, will have to come and straighten him out. And yet each time, each time when Peter fell, he learned better how to stand again. Each time when Peter fell, his love for his Lord was renewed. Each time he fell, he found forgiveness and the grace in Jesus. And so I want us today to learn this lesson, the lesson that perhaps Peter learned. The world will not stop Jesus from building his church. That much we know. But neither will your failures. Neither will your failures. So, Jesus is constantly pulling victory out of defeat, honor out of embarrassment, and success out of failure. He did so in Golgotha, where he went to the place where condemned men go to bear the curse of hanging on a tree. And through that, he atoned for the sins of the entire world. And so if we fall, if we fall, we'll just learn better how to stand. We make mistakes and embarrass ourselves. We'll recover our honor as we remember that we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sin, we are sure to find mercy and grace. We, through faith, belong to Christ's church. And not even hell itself will overcome it. Christ, solid rock.